If you like the Michael and Us podcast, then I think you'll definitely like more of the Michael and Us podcast. That's right, folks. At patreon.com slash Michael and Us, we have an extra premium episode every week. That's four a month for the low, low price of $5. Some of our recent Patreon episodes have included discussions on Bill Maher's new stand-up special, Hashtag Adulting, Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece, High and Low, the new miniseries, Secrets of Playboy, and a listener-selected episode on the documentary, RBG. Remember, folks, that's patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Now, on with the show. If you see Richard Spencer Why don't you give him a big black eye? Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I'm fond on this podcast of quoting the late, great Gene Siskel when he said that movies were the national dream beat. Because we're fond of talking in this podcast about how cinema and all art, I guess, is a way for a nation, a society to process its trauma. So when Siskel said that, you're telling me he was actually channeling Siegfried Krakauer (laughs) and the Frankfurt School. Well, Krakauer was often called the uh, Gene Siskel of his day. Anyway, I want to bring up a movie that I went to see last night that uh, I'm not quite sure where to place it in this formulation. I went to see the new Liam Neeson action movie, Memory which sometimes I like to get out there and uh, go panning for gold amongst the sort of, you know, the B movies that are playing on the screens that Marvel hasn't taken up. So this movie was pretty bad, but here's what was interesting about it. I didn't know anything about this movie going in, but it's a movie that is set in El Paso, Texas, against the backdrop of the U.S. border crisis. And it's very much about kids in cages and all that sort of thing. Liam Neeson plays a hitman who, you know, he's got one last job and it ends up getting him entangled in this uh, sex trafficking conspiracy that implicates this oligarch who owns the various detention centers at the U.S. border. She's played by Monica Bellucci. And the Monica Bellucci oligarch character, she has a son who's a very Hunter Biden-ish figure. There's all sorts of incriminating evidence on a thumb drive, basically saying that he's using these detention centers that she owns as his own personal harem. Very unpleasant stuff. The whole kids in cages news cycle is something that happened a couple of years ago. We don't we don't hear about it as much anymore, but there was a fever pitch discourse around it a couple of years ago that has since subsided. And it's, it's yeah, still- it's interesting. I mean, uh, I wonder why that went away. And it's also this movie takes it as a given and the audience takes it as a given. We all take it as a given that there is massive sexual abuse happening at centers like this. And what what do you do with that knowledge? It's horrific knowledge. It's it's knowledge that's incompatible with the ideals of American society. Well, you bury it. You know, you go to brunch, you you watch uh, Morbius, you watch SNL make fun of Mitch McConnell, and then uh... you know the idea that uh, pedophilia and sex trafficking could be a rampant systemic problem at these government institutions or government affiliated institutions is so upsetting, so evil to comprehend. And as as we said, something that, that we take as an absolute given. 
And we also take it as an absolute given that our political institutions or the United States political institutions are are powerless to stop it, or they will do nothing to stop it, depending on your perspective. So what do you do? You've got to start normalizing the idea, or if not normalizing it, you've got to at least make it just another part of the vast tapestry of American atrocities that we all know are going on. It can no longer be a fever pitch atrocity. It can no longer be the greatest atrocity that's ever happened. It's just got to be one of many atrocities that we're, we're going to deal with. Right, right. I mean, I think that's actually a pretty profound point. I mean, that is one of the ways that people and I think liberals in particular deal with the bipartisan brutality of, of America's political ecosystem. You know, you, you don't officially forget about things like this, but you kind of subsume them into an abstraction that's so lo- that's so large uh, that you're alleviated from the responsibility of thinking about them, except when it's useful to your assumed partisan identity, as was very much the case, you know, uh, for, for, you know, certain liberals between uh, 2016 and 2020. And part of this process, this process of normalization means uh, making it a subject that is grist for the mill for a Liam Neeson action movie. There was a time maybe two years ago when people would say you can't possibly make entertainment out of something like this. But if it's still going... Uh, and if if it's not going to change, it has to be something that part of the normalization process is turning it into something that Liam Neeson can can entertain you for two hours with. I mean, it strikes me that there's, uh, you know, an interesting comparison to be drawn here or a potentially interesting one uh, between this this Liam Neeson film you're describing and uh, whatever it was, Rambo 7 or what is it called? Rambo Last Blood, which we uh, discussed, I don't know, a uh, year or two ago on the pod. The most recent Rambo movie. I mean, just cartoonishly reactionary, also terrible production values. From what I remember, piecing this together from uh, my fragmentary memory of an awful film that I watched once and, and tried my best to bury, John Rambo, uh, for some reason, lives on a kind of a, you know frontier homestead, like on the USA-Mexico border, and he has an estranged daughter or something like that who gets kidnapped by sort of generic Mexican criminals who I think are called in the film gangbangers or something like that. And, you know, he, he eventually travels south and rescues her, and then I think there's... There ends up being a shootout back in America because, of the course, they come back for vengeance. That movie came out during the Trump era and seems to be, you know, if, if it's channeling anything, it's channeling the nativism of, of MAGA. But it sounds like, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the portrayal of kind of the border and the, you know, uh, detention centers and things like that in this new Liam Neeson film is more about portraying those things as tragic in some kind of way. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think the movie is ambiguous politically on where it stands on the detention centers and U.S. border policy itself. But certainly it takes it as a given that, yes, you know, horrific sexual abuses are happening to innocent people. And there's a there's a vast government conspiracy to hide it. You know, there's there's a certain element of Epstein stuff in there, too, I think. Well, it seems like uh, taking the two films together, we've sort of got the competing root impulses of, you know, the two mainstream partisan identities in the United States right there. So on the one side with Rambo, you've got, you know, pure id based, you know, uh, racism, shooting the bad guys, you know, just articulating reactionary fantasies in the most violent way possible and kind of enacting them through spectacle. And on the other side, you got bearing witness to suffering and the idea that, yep, well, the world is bad, but it's a tragedy. And the thing about tragedy in the classical sense is that it's it's inevitable and you can't actually do anything about it. Seems like two movies that capture the essence of modern conservatism and liberalism to me pretty well.
Well, uh, speaking of the essence of modern conservatism, uh, I have uh, continued to follow Canada's Tory leadership race. I actually watched both of the debates uh, that they've had so far. I watched uh, one of them live last night, and then I went back and I watched the one from a few days earlier because I heard that that was the one where they were all shouting at each other, which my girlfriend and I very much wanted to see. Well, you're going to have to re-familiarize our listeners and perhaps <laughs> even me a little bit. Uh, hey, a uh, negligent Canadian voter on who some of the candidates are. Okay, well, very quickly, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada is uh, your Canada's main right-wing party is having a leadership race to uh, replace the recently ousted Aaron O'Toole, a guy who bungled the 2021 federal election, which it briefly looked like he was going to win and uh, kind of fell victim to the freedom convoy and, you know, his inability to manage a caucus and a base that was, uh, you know, very much aligned with those things, uh, while also trying to project this more respectable image and and sort of rebrand the uh, Conservative Party, albeit in a somewhat opportunistic way. So O'Toole is out, and there are six candidates in the race, three of whom are, uh, I think, it's safe to say kind of also rands already. There's a guy called Scott Aitkinson, who's a, a MP for Perry Sound, Muskoka. He's sort of the nice, friendly moderate in the race. He's the let's all just get along candidate. Uh, there's a guy called Roman Babber. Very predictable in this era of politics, there'd be a candidate like this. This guy was a member of the PC caucus in Ontario at Queen's Park, which is the Ontario legislature. And uh, he had a number of snafus, but eventually he became a COVID guy. So he became like a full-blown anti-mandate, anti-lockdown guy. He was booted from the caucus uh, and now he's running as, you know, the I was the guy who heroically stood up to, uh, you know, communism or whatever. Um, oh yeah, that's another thing about him is that he was born, I think, in 1980 uh, in the USSR. So something he talks about all the time is how he comes from a communist country. So that's informed, you know, his opposition to all these things, yada, yada. The third also ran, who I suspect will actually do pretty well because she came in third in the previous Tory leadership race, is this woman, Leslin Lewis. She's kind of the pro-life candidate. She's the social conservative candidate through and through. Social conservatives uh, aren't numerous enough within the conservative party to actually elect someone directly, or at least they've never been, but they are very well organized. So what they tend to do, uh, what they've done lately, is they've run a single candidate who's basically like the anti-abortion candidate and the social conservative candidate. And then that person kind of plays kingmaker and kind of works to elect the more right wing of the of the front runners. Moving up the list to the people who might actually have some chance of winning. Um, although, as you'll hear in a second, I think uh, one candidate is almost certainly going to win. Uh, we've got Patrick Brown, former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. Uh, I feel like we talked about him and his ouster on a previous episode. From that, That's a whole story in itself. Don't want to get into it now. Suffice it to say, uh, his candidacy is a, is a strange pastiche of different things. As someone who was ousted after some allegations appeared uh, and then kind of had a political come back, became mayor of Brampton, Ontario. He's running as, as a guy who, uh, you know, I stood up to cancel culture and won. But then he's also running as, you know, he's the mayor of this very multicultural uh, city in Ontario. And so he's running as this kind of guy who stands for religious freedom and sort of pluralism. He's kind of uh, pursuing a sort of multicultural uh, strategy of uh, conservatism, uh, while also talking about things like, uh, you know, how he's uh, he stopped the war on Christmas in Brampton and things like that. So a, a whole different... Uh, 
uh, and I think very Canadian pastiche of kind of conservative impulses at work there. Then you've got Jean Charest, former premier of Quebec, a figure who's been prominent in uh, Canadian politics for a long time, was actually the leader of the National Progressive Conservative Party in the 90s, which no longer exists. He's uh, he's kind of playing the hits. He was delivering some kind of vintage like 1980s and early 90s Canadian conservatism, talking about national unity and that kind of stuff. Very kind of Mulroney era type stuff. He's running again as sort of the moderate experienced candidate, although, you know, because this is the Conservative Party, he's also in some cases, you know, sort of j- trying to jump over the other ones. And uh, everyone's competing here over, you know, who's been the most consistently reactionary. There was a whole uh, there was a whole flourish last night for about 15 minutes where they were all doing that. Uh, and then lastly, we've got the MP for Nepean Carlton, uh, Pierre Polyev, who is, I think, pretty indisputably the front runner here. And I would be absolutely astonished if Polyever didn't win. Now, this guy uh, has a history, a long history going back to at least 2004. He was an early entry into the Conservative Caucus, uh, National Conservative Caucus, two years before they even formed a government. I'm not going to get into his whole history here. He's got a huge online presence. He's a Bitcoin guy. He had a campaign uh, event where he kind of theatrically bought shawarma with Bitcoin. But he, I think, very much represents the consensus choice for the Conservative Party, as well as, I think, the most right-wing choice in many ways. He's not a social conservative, really, but he's a staunch fiscal conservative insofar as that phrase still means anything. Uh, He wants to cut back the welfare state dramatically and replace it with what I think he called a survival state. Like I said, he's really into crypto. And, you know, he does have the... He is uh, also an establishment figure in many ways. He's got the backing of at least one former leader of the conservative party, much of the sitting conservative caucus, etc. But he is striking these kind of populist notes. And I think my main takeaway, what I really wanted to say in all this, last night, both Brown and Sheree, and I think some of the other candidates as well, were sort of going after Polyevra with these attack lines that, you know, if you followed right-wing politics for the past five or six years, I don't know why anybody thinks this stuff uh, is going to work. So, you know, I don't want to overstate Polyevra here. I don't want to big him up too much. He's very much has kind of uh, soft Ben Shapiro vibes when they were asked about, you know, which book are you all reading uh, right now? You know, let's get to know you a bit. Uh, The others mostly gave these very fluffy answers. And, you know, he said, oh, I'm reading Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. So he kind of has that, you know, YouTube guy, Redditor energy. In some ways, he reminds me of kind of campus conservatives that I knew uh, when I was in university. But the fact is, you know, he is articulate as an ideologue to this particular audience. And so he's striking all these populist notes. He's kind of attacking the media. You know, it's another thing of his. He wants to defund the CBC. He was actually attacking the moderator somewhat uh, last night, the moderator of the debate, who was uh, a a longtime journalist for the CTV uh, network, which is one of the biggest TV networks in Canada. But again and again, you know, he returns to this kind of basic uh, messaging about how, you know, I want to make this the freest country on earth and I want to fight the gatekeepers and help you take back control of your life. So, you know, if you're a young person, you can buy a house. You know, uh, he talks about the working class. That's a phrase he actually uses, which, by the way, if I'm one of the other uh, Tory candidates, that's your opening right there. You should start. I want to see someone red bait Pierre Polyevra. They should start saying that's the move. You start saying working class. That sounds awfully Marxist to me, Pierre. I'm a Thatcherite. I believe in a classless society. Just a just a friendly tip to my friends in the Conservative Party. 
Anyway, Polyev has this message, which is, you know, we're going to take back control. We're going to fight the gatekeepers. You know, you are going to take back control of your own life, etc. And Brown and Sheree kept attacking him for, you know, quote unquote, divisive rhetoric, American style culture war rhetoric, you know, various formulations like that were used. Sheree even went on this whole spiel about how Polyev had promised to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada. You know, Polyev is like, you know, a conservative kind of wonk who has that like very pedantic concern with money and currency and stuff, which is why he's drawn to crypto. And he has this stupid idea about, well, you know, with crypto, people can opt out of inflation, which is an especially hilarious line to take in a week where the crypto market is completely tanking. But anyway, Sheree had this whole line of attack, which was basically... Uh, as conservatives, we don't attack institutions. That's not what conservatives do. We beg them up. And I'm sorry, but take back control is a much more appealing message, whatever you think of Polyevra ideologically, than don't insult the dignity of the governor of the Bank of Canada. How anybody who's watched right-wing politics for the past five or six years uh, watch those play out, how anybody believes that this line of attack is going to work is completely beyond me. Well, it sounds like the conservative movement in Canada is at a crossroads. Now let's go back a couple of years in the past to the conservative movement in the United States in a similar uh, state of existential angst in the 2020 documentary, White Noise. The word racist just means nothing to me anymore. It's been so overused that I I just have no respect for that term. To understand the alt-right, I think you do have to understand our experience. I've lived in this multicultural mess my entire life. It really puts you on the map if you're willing to espouse views that the world finds shocking. I could not see a single European face. Assimilate or go home. I want to be a household name. What's your gender? Good question. I don't know. Mischief making. Whites are becoming a minority in the United States quickly. All of us Europeans, we have the responsibility to reproduce. Having a family shouldn't be about personal pleasure or personal well-being. Like, that's not nationalist. That's not collectivist. Well, I got to tell you, this one, um, you know, it's it's a good documentary, but it was a little exhausting just being reimmersed in all this stuff, you know, all these characters, all these, you know, just hearing words like platforming and, you know, really brought back so many memories, so many unpleasant memories. And seeing the characters that were assembled in this film, who we'll get to, these <laughs> flash in the pan figures of kind of the first half of Trump's presidency. Extremely back to brunch vibes, by the way, and everything you just said. It's like, oh, it was so tiresome to have to hear about these things. White supremacy and white nationalism. Exhausting. (laughs) It's interesting how fast our boogeymen change and evolve just just in terms of their affect or their style or who the individual sort of canonical members of, of the boogeyman society are. Because in the Bush era, it was Christian fundamentalists. In the Obama era, it was Tea Party Republicans, as well as, I guess, men's rights activists a little bit, that kind of was Yeah, that was late period Obama was like after 2013, or, you know, you had Gamergate, and you had all this stuff that was kind of the the proto version of the type of politics, which is explored in this movie. These various groups morphed into the alt-right, and now they're QAnon people, or they're insurrectionists. Anyway, I guess we should talk a little bit about what this movie is, who it's about. 
And uh, I'm also curious, what made you want to discuss this film this week? Well, there are a number of things that I find uh, quite interesting about this film and which seemed worthy of discussion. Uh, The first is that it belongs to a category of film which we've explored before on the podcast and which I quite like, which is these sort of gonzo documentaries that don't have a lot of commentary. You know, we watched that one, uh, The Swamp, which, you know, featured Matt Gates. Don't remember the number of the episode, but that one was called Enemy at the Gates. I've seen another, a few other films in this vein, and I quite like this style of documentary. Uh, I like the show-don't-tell style. I think that the level of access that f- these filmmakers are sometimes able to get to figures that you don't usually get to see this way because they're kind of, you know, performers and characters, uh, I think that can be very insightful, and I think this film is pretty exceptional in that regard. So that's one reason. A second reason, which is related, is that I think, uh, by definition, this kind of movie and this style of documentary filmmaking really grates against the prevailing consensus for how you're supposed to treat uh, reactionary subjects. I want to bookmark that for a second and come back to it. Uh, The third reason is that I actually think in a very broad and I stress not at all morally or politically equivalent way, certain parallels between what we see happen to the far right in this film post-2017. As you said, these are figures who, you know, we associate their kind of zenith uh, with the first part of the of the Trump thing and, and less so with the second part, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But there are certain parallels between that, I think, uh, and what has happened to at least the online portion of uh, the left in a post-Bernie world, um, which is a question that is obviously independent in many ways of, of the meat of this film, but which is something that I want to discuss at some point. But just to, re- just to return to the potentially controversial nature of this style, I actually pulled some different reviews of this movie. And these are, I say reviews, these are kind of user reviews, but I tried to pull a bunch, which I think represent a, you know, they're emblematic of the spectrum of opinion about this movie and movies like it. Um, So first one, let's give racists a voice, make them look cool and give them a chance to explain themselves. That's what I feel like this movie is trying to accomplish. Check it out yourself. I'm done. 30 minutes in and I've had enough. So that's comment one. Misleading propaganda from the source of identity politics. Bit of a fail all round. Uh, or in the same vein, a woke propaganda piece. Crass. Uh, another one in the same vein. This isn't a movie. It's not a documentary. It's a hit piece funded by people with views they mandate no longer one question. I'm reading verbatim here. There are not insider views. There is no investigative journalism here. It's very much pieced together selective clips to advance a false narrative, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea, and then it ends. If anything, the best use of this will be to review in future film classes to show what America was reduced to. It plays like a 10-year-old wants to be Lenny Riefenstahl for the globalist complicit Democrat Party. So, uh, differing opinions on the movie. There was a New York Times review written by Ben Kinnigsberg, uh, which I think captures perhaps more articulately what's at stake in a film like this. And I'm not picking on it. I think it's just emblematic of the kind of debates that uh, inevitably swirl around a film like this. Uh, He wrote, Viewed one way, giving these subjects a platform is dangerous or at best pointless. They're quite practiced at deflecting engagement or criticism and at pretending their most hateful rhetoric is being misinterpreted. A documentary would have to penetrate a thick shield of denial to reveal much. While the film doesn't take a strict fly-on-the-wall approach, Lombrasso, that's the director, can occasionally be heard off-screen challenging the subjects. It sticks close enough to inner circles that its message sometimes risks coming across as extremists or just like us. Cernovich is shown with his dog, his daughter and his wife, who emphasizes her Iranian heritage. But close observation can illuminate contradictions, and Lombroso, semi-edifyingly, catches his subjects in moments of opportunism or hypocrisy, even if those aren't much of a trade for spending 90 minutes in this company. 
so I think cards on the table. I I come down pretty firmly on one side of this. I think uh, a film like this clearly has a critical orientation towards its subjects. I think that by showing them uh, in such a kind of up-close and intimate light, you know, where he's actually interacting uh, with the three central uh, figures in the movie, you know, if anything, uh, this style kind of penetrates the shield of irony, the kind of character they've constructed for themselves, you know, the online image, whatever you want to call it. And I think that reveals, you know, as uh, as the review was kind of uh, suggesting, the contradictions and hypocrisies uh, that are inherent in what they're doing. Well, we'll get to the three characters in the movie in a minute but just responding to what you said i agree with you in the case of this particular film and also generally however there are certain documentaries or pieces of journalism from the last five or six years that are attempting to do this exact kind of thing you know shine a light on these people and let them explain themselves and learn who they are directly from them and hopefully they will hang themselves with their own words in the process there are there are certain pieces of journalism and documentary filmmaking that do that very badly i'm thinking of some of errol morris's documentaries like that dreadful one we watched about donald rumsfeld or he made a film in the first half of the trump era about steve bannon where he basically did the same treatment for steve bannon i haven't seen it i don't think it was widely distributed because from what i hear it was basically a failure morris interviewed him did his whole thing with steve bannon and steve bannon uh, acquitted himself very well just just bluntly explained what he believed in and morris didn't have the intellectual firepower didn't have the point of view to really challenge him on anything he said. He, he couldn't do much more than what we see some people in this documentary do, which is say, but, 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 surely you, surely you can't think that, or, but, but, surely you, you take some responsibility for the violence that's being done in your name, right? <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought this up because it's an important point about the impulse some people have to condemn this style of filmmaking because, you know, it's platforming particular views or however the criticism is formulated. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, there was a very poor style of journalism, particularly at the beginning of the Trump era. Um, In fact, you know, Richard Spencer, who's one of the major characters in this movie, right? He got that right up. I think it might have been in the New York Times where it was like, you know, the framing was like, meet, meet the dapper white supremacist who's, you know, become a voice on the alt-right. So, you know, there absolutely were kind of these credulous pieces of journalism taking up a very silly idea of ideological balance or whatever really did uh, platform these people's views in a way which lent them respectability as if, you know, advocating mass deportation of people based on their racial identities is somehow an idea that it's worthy of deliberation and is kind of, uh, you know, equivalent in the public sphere as a point of debate or, or contention to the idea of uh, universal health care or uh, immigration reform or whatever. Obviously, that type of journalism or, you know, that type of filmmaking is is not good and is not uh, constructive or healthy. But there's a very thin line between that and this. And a lot of the line is just defined by the intelligence and point of view of the person wielding the camera, you know? And, and you know, the, the whole Steve Bannon charm offensive that was launched in the first half of the Trump era, I remember when he was invited to speak at the New Yorker Festival to be interviewed on stage. And a lot of the defenses around that were like, well, you've got to understand where this guy's coming from. You've got to, under- you've got to understand he's he's uh, represents a whole constituency of people. And essentially that not unlike, you know, what we saw in that Liam Neeson movie I was talking about earlier, what it accomplishes is not to shine a light on the person, but to make the person bearable within the context of American life, if, if they are to exist, you know, not necessarily present them as good, but to make them 
them part of the tapestry so that you can sleep at night, which is not what this movie does. Now, that's all a rather long preamble. Uh, So I think now we can uh, get into white noise and and kind of what it's about. I mean, essentially, this film charts the chorus of three different alt-right influencers, notably in the wake of Charlottesville in 2017 and the recriminations that came out of it. Uh, I think the choice of subjects here is striking because while all of them are in some ways, you know, quite similar. Each, I think, represents something of a different tendency on the right. And I mean, I don't even really mean that in an ideological sense, because they have a tremendous amount uh, in common in terms of, you know, the racist views they're espousing and and other things. Um, I mean it more in terms of kind of where they're planting their flag uh, aesthetically as personalities, because I use the word influencers to describe these people. And I mean, I really think uh, that is the correct term. You know, these are people who in one way or another had careers, you know, momentarily quite successful and visible careers that were really products of the internet and of a particular age and era of the internet. Uh, and I think for that reason, you know, they're all trying to kind of surf the, the waves of engagement and the winds of online clout and visibility using their own particular compasses and in their own uh, self-interest, both kind of ideological and, and political, but also personal. There really is a spectrum here. So, you know, at one end, you've got Mike Cernovich, who is, I think, more or less a sort of pure edgelord. I mean, the word is very much overused these days. It's kind of a cliche that you can't really use anymore. But if the word grifter was ever applicable, I think it would certainly apply to this guy. I mean, he's had, I don't know how many different identities in the span of the last, you know, five or six years. He's planted his flag on all kinds of different things. He began, I think, uh, or at least he attained uh, his original visibility by being, you know, a particularly noxious and despicable kind of men's rights blogger. And just in the course of this movie, we see him kind of transform from, you know, he goes from that to being, you know, he's a sort of alt-light, alt-right adjacent, sort of Trump-aligned figure uh, who then gets into hawking supplements, which I want to talk about that scene in particular in a bit. Richard Spencer at one point says that he regards Cernovich as a grifter, and Cernovich makes very little effort to suggest that he's anything but. Uh, At one point he says, I'm not a political guy, I live off what I can sell. Uh, His wife Life is an Iranian Muslim woman who has no particular opinion about anything that he says. And in the second half of the movie, he's he's kind of fretting because he's being painted in the media with the same brush as people like Richard Spencer, people who are truly ideological white supremacists. And, you know, he's just he's just out to make a buck, basically. I haven't really checked in on Mike Cernovich lately. I'm not quite sure where he's at in his evolution. He's a he's a trad guy now, actually. His latest thing is that uh, he had a he had a great tweet last week about how he doesn't listen to heavy metal or I think rap because they are, uh, you know, aligned with uh, demonic chakras or something like that. Uh, But Richard Spencer is one of the other two characters. You all know him doesn't need any introduction. Yeah, and, you know, he kind of sits, you know, on the uh, opposite end of the spectrum here in terms of, you know, he, he was somebody who was very much willing to openly align himself with the language of ethno states and, uh, you know, the iconography of fascism and things like that. We see uh, in the film the, the, you know, the famous scene where he was speaking to that group of people and he says, you know, hail Trump, hail victory. And then he gives the Nazi salute and then you know, various people in the room, Zig Heil. We see him in the, you know, the famous uh, Torch March from Charlottesville. He is also, I think it's important to stress, 
an opportunist, albeit in a, a bit of a different way than Cernovich. But then our final character uh, is Lauren Southern. Big thrill for us Canadians. I mean, wow. <laughs> did you go to school with Lauren Southern? I know someone who did. No, I think she uh, I think she actually grew up in British Columbia. Uh, Faith Goldie, who appears in the film uh, very briefly, uh, is somebody who I briefly came across at U of T and actually had a class Ontario politics with her. Um, Th- that's who I was thinking of. My apologies to the listeners. But yeah, Lauren Southern is living or was living in Toronto. I don't know where she lives now when this film was made. So there's lots of shots of locations that are uh, familiar to Will and myself, including one scene, which uh, I don't want to say how close it is to my apartment, this bar that she and her Nazi boyfriend go to. But uh, it's uh, it's pretty close. Uh, in fact, I've been there many times myself. And this scene, I mean, jumping ahead a bit, but I mean, this is an absolutely astonishing scene. The crux of it is that her and her kind of Hitler Youth-styled boyfriend are sitting there. They're on the topic of parenthood. Uh, She's basically saying that, you know, she'd like to have children someday. And his response to this is, you know, that he thinks that uh, having children is a kind of, you know, responsibility you have if you're on the right. You know, you have a responsibility to reproduce. But he's discouraging her from the idea that she should uh, be happy about this prospect or revel in it. And she's saying, well, why not? I mean, why, why shouldn't you be happy about having children? And he says, uh, because it's not nationalist. It's not collectivist. He says that whether or not you're happy about it is irrelevant. It's a moral obligation. That's the main thing. It's funny hearing these guys talk about collectivism and solidarity in a completely different context than the one that, you know, we're used to thinking about it. Well, I want to stop on that point and comment in a less ironic way, uh, just briefly. I mean, what, what you're describing there really is the essence of classical fascism, right? I mean, this was the thing that, you know, the project that people like Mussolini uh, and others were working on in the you know 1920s and 30s. You had this rise of uh, all these mass workers parties and things like that, you know, socialist parties and just mass parties in general, which hadn't really existed before. And traditional conservative parties really weren't uh, up to snuff. You know, they were full of these stodgy guys who hadn't been used to competing under uh, mass suffrage. And what the architects of fascism figured out, some of whom had started their uh, lives on the left, you know, Oswald Mosley in Britain was a labor MP, Mussolini was a syndicalist of some kind, the list goes on. What they figured out was how to fuse far-right politics with kind of, you know, the dynamism of mass parties and also with the rhetoric of social solidarity and collectivism, which of course they had this kind of fake workerist language. The Nazi party was built on what Hitler called national socialism and Hitler came out of something that was called, that called itself the German Workers Party. But of course the idea of solidarity or, you know, community or collectivism they had was redirected away from kind of proletarian internationalism and towards white ethnic solidarity. So I'm sure all of that's known to most or all of our listeners, but I did just want to get that point in because, you know, this guy talking that way is importantly uh, not even a little bit ironic. I mean, he's, you know, you can say that he's LARPing or whatever, because he's sitting at a bar in downtown Toronto, channeling sentiments from the 1930s. But I mean, it's he, it's not a joke. And it's it's not not really an affectation. Or if it is, it's one that I think we should take at face value with all the implications that comes with it. Uh, there are some other minor characters that we see throughout the movie. Most of the leading lights of the alt-right make an appearance at some point. Uh, Gavin McInnes appears a couple of times uh, as sort of the clown prince of the alt right there's a peculiar scene where he seemingly makes advances on lauren southern and then uh the filmmaker puts text on screen to say that his lawyers have made clear that he was not actually making advances on her 
Well, that's a very important moment, actually, because part of the trajectory, uh, you know, we see the trajectory of all three of the figures in this movie, you know, Cernovich, uh, Spencer, and Southern. But Southern's trajectory, uh, as we see it, I think is probably the one that lends itself most to, you know, if you did want to make the charge that this film is is indulging in a sort of, oh, they're just like us kind of sympathy narrative around these figures, you know, she'd, she'd be the one where that charge, where, where the film is most vulnerable to that charge. Because, you know, she's somebody who importantly started out her career when she was a teenager doing these really hideous kind of anti-feminist edgelord videos on YouTube. And throughout the film, we see that come up against uh, the the fact that one of the structuring tendencies on the alt-right is misogyny and hatred of women. And so there's a particularly memorable scene where she's about to go on McInnes' show and he's interviewing someone else and she's kind of waiting to go on. And they're just having this like incredibly sexist conversation. And then it cuts to her in, in a car the next morning I guess in a taxi and uh, we see her take a phone call from McInnes where he's clearly trying to gauge her uh, reaction to whatever the fuck he was trying to do the previous night which you know I think I think it's pretty easy to extrapolate from the scene what happened and while I don't think it would be fair to say that Lauren Southern kind of moderates over the course of the film uh, this is one point where she does seem to at least back away a little bit from some of the rhetoric that launched her career and that becomes obvious in a in a later scene where she's talking with the filmmaker and clearly has this interaction with McKinnis in mind. I've had some scary experiences, some heroes that have fallen. In general, though, the trajectory we see from her is that, uh, you know, she starts out as this kind of edgelord commentator uh, and then engages in, a, in what I think is largely a failed attempt to become a more serious type of far-right commentator. She ends up making this film, uh, this kind of anti-immigration film uh, that she plays, I guess, before a delegation of the European Parliament. Uh, some European MP, who I uh, think is a woman from UKIP, uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party, uh, invites her and, you know, she gives this presentation of the of the film, which I think was called Borderless, uh, to this gathering of kind of far-right people at the European Parliament. Uh, I think Stefan Molyneux, I spotted him in attendance there as well. But so she kind of tries and largely fails to rebrand herself. There's another scene, uh, which I think to me is, is possibly the ugliest and most disturbing scene in the movie, uh, where in the course of making her racist documentary, she goes to find some uh, asylum seekers, illegals as she calls them, uh, in Paris. And she misrepresents herself to them. She talks about, and she offers them chocolate. She talks to them in this very sympathetic way. And in the scene that follows as she's kind of driving away in the car, I mean, something momentarily pretty remarkable happens, which is that she starts delivering one of her anti-immigrant spiels and then sort of proceeds to almost talk herself out of it. She sort of backs away from it. She sort of says, you know, well, and you know, of course, these are just people and they have their difficulties. And then, you know, she tries to kind of triangulate by going, but, but, you know, we need to have order because if there is an order, it doesn't work for anybody. Everybody loses. And so again, this is the kind of thing which I think could lend this film to, you know, an incorrect charge of, uh, you know, having a sympathetic uh, reading of these people. What I think this is actually showing is something a little bit different. I think it's showing online edgelordism, which has, you know, largely been contained to, you know, the bedrooms from which these videos are streamed and which, you know, YouTube careers have been made. It's that and the kind of shroud of, you know, uh, 
edgelord irony around it. Those things in the scene really come up against just the realities of the world and the fact that there are these people who have been forced to flee to Europe because their lives were in danger in their home countries and who had to make these incredibly dangerous journeys in order to do so. That's what I think is happening in the scene, not that the film is trying to portray Lauren Southern in a sympathetic light. Because, of course, uh, towards the end, she becomes increasingly evasive with the filmmaker uh, when he's pushing her on, you know, whether she regrets any of her past statements. Uh, she did back away from being an online, you know, right-wing personality for about a year. And, I mean, during the Freedom Convoy stuff a few months ago, uh, I tuned into one of her streams for a bit. She seems very much the same person uh, she's always been. We're seeing our messages almost everywhere now. They've gone sort of mainstream. Those views don't seem so fringe anymore because they're one click away on YouTube. Hate crimes are on the rise in the US and Europe and continue to rise every year. Do you think that your rhetoric contributed to that climate? Hail Trump! Hail our people! Charlottesville is depicted in the movie as the moment when the honeymoon ended. As the movie goes along, the characters become increasingly uncertain and discouraged. They're all struggling financially to one degree or another. The media attention is not translating to money. Some of them also feel a little bit alienated by Donald Trump, too, that he's not living up to the promise that they projected onto him. Luke, earlier in the discussion, you alluded to thinking about a certain splintering of uh, the post-Bernie left, for want of a better term. You know, I'm not quite sure where this fits in, but I've certainly sensed this new kind of ambient bad feeling that's been in the air since Joe Biden's election, a new kind of bad feeling. The big selling point for Biden was obviously that he was going to provide steady, stable leadership that would bring the country together as much as possible. And and that's and that's going well. And more importantly, he would make politics disappear. And, you know, that has so not happened that we're now hearing that the U.S. Supreme Court is planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. In the U.S., again, one thing that people are united about is the absolute certainty that nothing will get better and that these institutions are either unwilling or powerless to stop the irretrievable decline. And there's this ambient bad feeling because it used to be there was this agreed upon, for anyone liberal or left of liberal, there was this agreed upon focal point, which was Donald Trump. And now there's no agreed upon focal point anymore. It's either the Republican Party or it's the system. And, you know, the system is is such an enormous thing. It's almost too big to wrap your head around. And on the left, there's no Bernie anymore. There's no focal point for that energy. And so I know that we've been reading a lot about how Peter Thiel is uh, swooping in and creating this uh, dynamic post-left arts ecosystem in certain of the major metropolitan areas of the United States. You know, in, in certain factions, the energy that used to be behind, you know, certain leftist ideas is now curdling into a kind of nihilism and to kind of like, well, nothing's going to get better, but, you know, Let's uh, let's get the bag and maybe Peter Thiel can pay for a space where, you know, we we can say the R word. Yeah. Or, or, you know, maybe Josh Hawley can trigger the libs or Tucker Carlson can trigger the libs or, or whatever. We'll always have Paris, which is, you know, triggering the libs. I think I largely agree with that. I mean, the, the landscape is very much, uh, you know, has been for some time. I mean, and this, this isn't my observation directly. I think the landscape is very much become that there's a consensus around futility. I mean, again, we talk about polarization. Well, there's a bipartisan consensus around all kinds of things, <laughs> you know, endless war, mass deportation 
representation, etc. But also in the sense of this ambient bad feeling that you're talking about, there's a shared belief and I think quite deep belief in futility that's been born out of various defeats and frustrations, but which manifests itself very differently depending on whether you're on, you know, the Republican right or, or whether you're a liberal. And, you know, if you're on the left, there have been some other developments, which I want to get to. But, you know, I think centrist liberals and the post-Trump right basically uh, agree that, yeah, nothing can really get better. This is more or less open on what's trying to brand itself as, you know, the new right, you know, this kind of uh, national conservatism or whatever these people are calling themselves now, represented by someone like J.D. Vance, uh, you know, another figure with close ties to Peter Thiel. Uh, also another example of somebody given an unnecessary boost by years of just utterly credulous and completely indefensible journalism from mainstream publications. But, you know, Vance is somebody who talks about how, you know, the United States is in a late Republican period, you know, and he's an Ivy League guy. So what he's talking about is, you know, late Republican Rome before uh, Augustus established the Roman Empire and, and overturned the Republic. So the right is, you know, speaking very much in this kind of, uh, you know, language of, you know, decline, we're living in the end times, you know, things aren't going to get better, you know, the present system can't deliver the goods, etc. For liberals, you know, I think there's very much something similar. I don't think there's kind of the same uh, language of, you know, civilizational decay or anything like that, because of course, being a centrist liberal is sort of all about upholding the system and talking about how, well, it's actually good, and we just need to appreciate it and return to the golden age, etc. But there's definitely, you know, a deep sense of, of futility, which we've already discussed. In fact, I mean, I think this came through off the top in a somewhat funny way through our inadvertent discussion of those two movies. But I mean, the difference between these two sensibilities is that the right wing sensibility uh, at least promises people like, well, hey, you can have fun, right? Like nothing's going to get better. But uh, you can be as rude as you want. You can indulge all of your prejudices. Uh, we're going to give you permission and we're not going to let the censorious woke libs uh, cancel you for it. And now Peter Thiel is trying to make that idea appealing to certain culturally liberal communities. I mean, it's quite evident uh, from this film, you know, the extent to which Charlottesville produced a very quick, I mean, a kind of lightning fragmentation of what had been until then, albeit fleetingly, a, a relatively unified online tendency. I mean, we we hear, I think it's Richard Spencer talk about how, oh, you know, I used to be, but I used to be friendly with Cernovich, you know, there was a time, you know, when Trump was coming up where, you know, we just felt this great sense of momentum and like we were willing all this forward. You know, it's kind of the racist version of that, you know, Hunter S. Thompson cresting of the wave thing. But it's clear that after Charlottesville, you know, all of that kind of came apart. I mean, I should say I, I saw that up close uh, in the work that I was doing at the time because I was spending a lot of time covering the far right and writing about it in those days. And I mean, Charlottesville really did present an existential crisis uh, for the right. And perhaps this is uh, such familiar terrain. We don't need to retread it too much. But I mean, Charlottesville, I think, really was a moment where whatever mask of irony uh, various converts to the alt-right had kind of told themselves uh, existed. I mean, I don't think the mask was just an outward one. I actually think various people who'd been drawn into all this because, you know, they just enjoyed, you know, they were losers who just enjoyed anonymously bullying people online or, you know, doxing women who worked in the games industry or whatever. All of a sudden they were confronted with, you know, open fascist Zig Heiling and, and you know, marching with torches and saying the Jews will not replace us and all that kind of stuff. And I think for, you know, a mixture of reasons, you know, some of which were obviously just, you know, pure opportunism. It's not very advantageous if you subsist 
list on clicks and engagements to align yourself with that stuff. All of that caused some people, opportunistically or not, to, to back away from this. And so what the film really shows us is, you know, what the different and competing responses to Charlottesville and to kind of the challenge it posed for the people on the alt-right. It shows us what they did to, you know, stay relevant, which, of you know, of course here mainly means not so much being politically influential, but, you know, still generating uh, those clicks and engagements, which were, you know, always the lifeblood of this thing. I do think it's clear that, you know, Richard Spencer, uh, his his heavy investment in the explicit iconography of fascism made his fall the quickest. I mean, Cernovich in the film uh, is seen chastising uh, Spencer on camera saying, you know, you know, you got to have message discipline. You're like, how do you think it looks to have people zig heiling? You know, how's that going to help me hawk my supplements? And, you know, by the end of the movie, uh, Spencer is seen just this very solitary figure playing the piano uh, very badly, by the way, at his mom's house, you know, just playing minor chords on the piano at his mom's house and snowed under in Montana. And he's sort of saying, well, you know, the, the beautiful ethno state that's coming, you know, I won't get to see it, but, you know, maybe my grandchildren will. And uh, he doesn't sound very convinced by any of that. Cernovich, he moves over just into kind of, uh, you know, hawking supplements and stuff. There's a line where he says, uh, you know, he's talking about these stupid, uh, you know, fitness supplements and, and kind of skincare products he's selling. And he's like, yeah, these things are great. These and the self-help seminars I do. That was his other thing, Gorilla Mindset, if you remember that. But he's saying these are these and the self-help things I do, they're low overhead and, and, and low risk. It's great. He says, a year from now, I will ideally only be selling facial skincare products. And there's this fucking amazing scene where he's shows us his workout routine because I guess he's like trying to show, you know, like a good, you know, YouTube fitness influencer or whatever. You know, he's trying to show like, look, guys, I don't just hawk these uh, these things like these are products that I use, which is why I'm recommending them to you. And you see him get ready to go for a run. And he's got this like he's like, yeah, I take 15 of these like nootropics or whatever, these stimulants, you know, before I exercise. And yeah, you know, they 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 help me every time. And then you see him like actually go for this run. And it looks like he's running for the first time. Like he just has like the worst form ever and he seems to be exhausted within about 30 seconds I mean, it's just very funny that this guy of all people uh, who has you know less than shall we say uh, the perfect Instagram physique uh, is, is trying to hawk this stuff and I think it's very funny that uh, we see him training uh, very badly but just to finish the point on Spencer, I mean, we see him uh, very unconvincingly try to do what Cernovich does, but just being too deep in for it to really work. So he tries to back away uh, somewhat. You know, there's this, this remarkable scene where he's being questioned by reporters after Charlottesville, and they're asking him all kinds of you know, pretty reasonable and fair questions about, you know, do you feel responsible for any of this and, you know, violence and stuff? And he's just going, absolutely not. You know, he's just completely credulous. There's a scene where uh, Christopher Matthias, the great Huffington Post reporter, who's done really wonderful work on the far right, which, by the way, we should have him on. I wish we'd had him on for this episode. But Christopher is asking Spencer, you know, quite, quite confrontationally, how are you not a Nazi? And he's just like listing off all the stuff that Spencer's aligned himself with. And, you know, Spencer is, again, trying to pretty unconvincingly back away from all of that stuff. And that culminates in what's uh, almost certainly the most cathartic scene in the movie, uh, which is where Spencer shows up to give a talk, uh, you know, at a university somewhere. And earlier in the film, we've seen him speaking to what are quite large audiences, albeit, you know, although many of the people are there to, uh, you know, have 
heckle and challenge him and, and yell at him. But he shows up at this uh, university somewhere and, uh, you know, he's in the green room or whatever backstage all by himself and he takes a call and, you know, he hears someone on the other line say, oh, there, you know, there's a riot outside and Spencer says, have we got another Charlottesville on, on our hands? I mean, it's remarkable the filmmaker captured this because what I think it's really conveying is, you know, when Spencer said, oh, do we have another Charlottesville on our hands? What he's really thinking in that moment is, is there going to be another PR crisis that's going to cost me visibility and clicks and clout and influence that I'm going to have to manage? And he then goes into this auditorium, which has an attendance so pathetic that he says right off the top, can you all move to the middle? Because that way, you know, I won't need to use a mic to reach all of you. And you just see him giving his kind of, you know, white supremacist stump speech uh, to this room full of pretty bored looking attendees and clearly feeling uh, pretty demoralized by all of it, which is very cathartic to see. Anyway, I, w- I want to return to this question uh, that you posed and which I raised off the top, which is the potential analogs between the kind of sectarianism and fragmentation on the far right that this film shows and what I think has happened on the left in some ways, uh, you know, in a post-Bernie world. Now, again, I'll just reiterate, I obviously don't mean this in any kind of uh, horseshoe theory way. I'm not drawing any sort of moral equivalence here. But, you know, the figures in this film, uh, like I said, variously talk about the sense of unity and momentum that they all felt kind of during Trump's candidacy and in the early days of his presidency. Um, And all of that we see replaced very quickly. I mean, really quite suddenly and abruptly by this kind of sectarianism, this fragmentation, these kind of uh, these rivalries, these competing attempts to stake out new ground and move away from the things that have been disadvantageous. You know, the the rhetoric uh, that's, you know, cost people clicks and that kind of thing. And I mean, look, we, we have seen a version of this on the left too, albeit for very different reasons. I mean, I think a lot of people got invested in socialist politics, you know, or in left politics more generally after 2015, you know, for, for a whole bunch of reasons. And I certainly don't think those of us who've been on the left before that should try to be gatekeepers about any of that. I mean, people getting interested in democratic socialism is unequivocally a good thing. And uh, in some respects, it doesn't matter what route people took to get there. But having said that, I mean, I do think that with the absence of an insurgent presidential campaign, you know, that was upsetting the right people that had this real sense of momentum attached to it, where, you know, I think for for some people, and I mean, I would to some extent count myself in this, you know, it felt like through our posts, you know, through by my own hand and through the power of my posts, we're willing this forward. We're winning uh, primaries and caucuses. You know, the, the Bernie thing had that going for it. It had this aura of transgressiveness around it. And I think what we've seen since that very suddenly collapsed in March of 2020, right as the coronavirus was uh, was starting and right as we were all locking down. I mean, we've come to see, I think, which parts of this very ecumenical cultural and political coalition, we've come to see what they were ultimately more attracted to, right? For some people, I think the appeal was really just pissing off liberals. And I think that was helped by, you know, Hillary Clinton in particular and the the type of campaign that she decided to run, right? I mean, I think Hillary Clinton ran a campaign that was so reveling in its establishment character and in really just how right wing it was and in, in kind of its open rejection of any kind of politics of hope or, or, you know, the idea that anything could get better. That created space for a lot of people who thought of themselves as liberals, who had thought of themselves as liberals, uh, you know, to move to the left. 
in the most cynical group, you had some people that were really just ideological rent seekers uh, in the sense that they saw something, they identified something that seemed cool and hipsterish. Uh, it had an aesthetic that appealed to them uh, that was transgressive. And as I said, you know, put pissed off the right people. And I think what we've seen among this most cynical group is that they've either disengaged, you know, entirely, or they've taken up uh, some version of the same model, or in a way that's more broadly associated with, you know, the idioms of the right and the and the rhetoric of the right. I guess there's another group, which is just people that became sort of ultra leftists, you know, like they were liberals in November of 2015 and democratic socialists by March, and I don't know, Maoist third worldists by, you know, April of 2020. Definitely a smaller and less less influential group. To put an optimistic bow on all that, I mean, I do want to say, and I'm not sure if I've said this on mic before, but I mean, when the Bernie campaign collapsed in March of 2020, I mean, I really did wonder uh, whether any of this stuff was here to stay. And in spite of everything I've just said, I mean, it very clearly is. I mean, it's it's true that it's not as unified or as focused uh, as it was before. But I mean, there's still a thriving and broad left intellectual culture and, you know, scene, if you want to call it that, that definitely didn't exist five or six years ago. And, and that's very much to be celebrated here. Well, after Corbin and Bernie were each defeated, I did wonder what this podcast would look like if it was not set against the backdrop of these two figures who were sort of symbolic figureheads of movements that seem to have a lot of momentum behind them. Yeah, that's right. Just like the just like the fascists after Charlottesville, you you were waking <laughs> up in a cold sweat, being like, "How are we gonna How are we gonna generate clicks and engagements for our quasi ironically branded Michael Moore podcast? How's that gonna work in a post Bernie Sanders world?" Well, um, you know, uh, all, all kidding aside, I guess I, I guess I did have a version of that thought. Uh, <laughs> but to maybe phrase it in a more charitable way, I was I was curious what the broader story being told was. And I don't know if we actually have an answer to that. But one thing that has happened is that things have remained bad. You know, things are things are still bad and in some cases getting worse. And these figures who have come in to be the great liberal refresh, like Keir Starmer or Joe Biden, they've not neutralized the badness. They've not distracted from the badness. So the answers to these problems are still there. I mean, they're not within as close a reach as they may have seemed two or three years ago, but they're still there and things are still getting worse. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, as you said, there were two competing responses to the rise of, you know, the right-wing currents that we see depicted in this movie. There was the liberal response, which was sort of an anti-political one that's like, well, the problem is that there's just this kind of ambiently and vaguely defined discontent. And we need to we need to neutralize that feeling because it's making people uncomfortable. Uh, we need to neutralize politics and get back to, you know, how things were during, you know, the Obama era where, you know, you had a president that looked good on TV and sounded good and spoke in these wonderfully comforting platitudes. And, you know, the culture was channeling these sort of vague narratives of social uplift or whatever. And it was all very uh, tranquilizing and placating. And hey, we just need to get back to that. And then there was, you know, the left response, which was like, well, you know, the whole damn system is wrong. We need to realign the politics of the major industrialized countries and transform the political order that both liberals and conservatives defend. Obviously, the former view won out. But by definition, you know, the neutralization of politics 
which contrary to what some people claim, I think really was the central appeal of someone like Joe Biden to many of the people that voted for him. I mean, that was just never going to work. And this goes back to the very basic disagreement uh, that liberals and the left had over Donald Trump's rise in the first place. I think for liberals, there was a real hesitancy to grapple with the idea that Donald Trump was the product of, you know, systemic causes, that he was born of the very political order that they were trying to celebrate and defend, you know, from Donald Trump, that there was not this clear line of division between the politics of quote unquote mainstream Republicanism and things like the alt-right. The left obviously took a very different view. And I think the events of the past few years really show that that analysis was the correct one. It's all well and good to promise that you're going to kind of tranquilize people, you're going to neutralize politics, you're going to let people go back to brunch. But at the end of the day, when you have a minoritarian political system that is deeply dysfunctional, where everything is essentially controlled by market forces and by big money and by corporate actors, when you have a continued radicalization on the right, and when you have a complacent class of liberals who refuse to grapple with these things or confront them in any meaningful way, and who are unsuccessful or unable or unwilling, some combination of all three, to pass a broadly popular agenda which they both ran on and which would be in their immediate electoral self-interest, when that's the reality, politics are not going to go away. Circumstances are going to get worse. Living standards are going to get worse. People's lives are going to get worse. And at the end of the day, there are no uh, sweeping platitudes or, you know, placating sentiments about bipartisanship or voting blue no matter who or whatever that are going to address any of these underlying problems. And so the task for the left in the coming years is to continue to provide and articulate as vocally and powerfully as we can a clear alternative to this, because if we don't, the next version of the right that we see in white noise is going to come roaring back and it's going to be even worse. You may be surprised People in this world are Getting organized You're bound to lose You fascists bound to lose